Good day, Harbor Church. It's Sean Boss here coming to you from the comfort of my living room with the second part of our three-part series that is doing a, a deep dive look into this season of Easter that we find ourselves in and what it means for us as Christians. Uh, David started our series last week by taking us through Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and, in effect, starting God's plan for redemption of redemption for his people. And then throughout the week, David also took us through everything Jesus had endured with the religious leaders and encounters he had with, his, with the people and his apostles, all the way up to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where he was arrested. And this is where I'm picking up in the series, and I'll be talking to that moment where Jesus is arrested and taking us all the way to the cross, where he gave his life for us. But in, in starting my, my, my message today, I want to start with a story. It's a story that takes me all the way back to my first missions trip in Guatemala. It was at about the midweek point of this trip where we found ourselves back at the residence where we were eating and sleeping, and we were having a time of refreshment and fellowship with us as a team, as well as a few other teams there that were there doing work. When the leader of this uh, organization, the lead pastor and the leader or director of this organization we were working with called Impacto Spanish Ministries had come in and we immediately knew something was wrong by the look on his face. He had called us all together for prayer. And what he was asking us to pray about was of a young girl, probably I think about three or four years old, who had been violently sexually assaulted by a family friend or a relative, I can't remember that part, but as a result of what she went through, she was in the hospital and in a coma. And uh, uh, it was heartbreaking to hear. And even more than that, what was heartbreaking to hear is, as a result of this attack, this young girl was now gonna have to live with what he called a sexual sickness in her blood which we took to mean a sexually transmitted disease. So we were heartbroken, we were full of tears, and we were ready to go to the Lord in prayer, but Pastor Luis didn't stop there. He also asked that we would pray for the offender. He asked that we would pray for the offender because if the community got a hold of him, he was probably gonna be killed. And if he was arrested and went to jail, he's probably gonna die in there as well. But even more than that, he had said we needed to pray for this individual because if he died in his current state, he would be facing the full and righteous wrath of God. So we went to the Lord in prayer and we prayed for all those things, as hard as some of them were to pray for. And you might be thinking, Sean, it's Good Friday. You're here to give us a message about Good Friday, probably the most solemn day that we have as Christians to reflect on, and you're starting your message with a story like this. And for me, for us to understand Good Friday and Jesus' sacrifice, we really have to understand the grotesqueness and the ugliness of sin. If we are to understand why only Jesus could do what was needed so that we could be made right with God. It's my hope that at the end of this message you'll understand that. So looking at our context verse for today's message, we're looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33, and you can follow along via the screen I have here beside me. It reads, 
He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This encounter that we read about in Mark 8 is an encounter that Jesus had with his apostles and his disciples long before, before he entered into Jerusalem. The encounter for us, Jesus is, is foretelling everything that he's going to go through that's going to result in our redemption. And he's also highlighting for us in his rebuke of Peter a few reasons I find as to why it has to happen this way. Starting in verse 31 and part of verse 32, Jesus is speaking plainly to his disciples. He's not speaking in parables. He's talking matter-of-factly and directly. And we're going to reread these short sections of Scripture, which say, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly of this. You see, it's in, in this section of Scripture and what Jesus says that we learn that this journey from the garden where we're starting to the cross is going to involve pain. It's going to involve abandonment and hardship that Jesus is going to go through so that we can be saved. And I'm going to do a very high level of all that Jesus had went through because to, to focus in on all the different things that Jesus endured from the garden to the cross would be just far too extensive. So at a very high level, I want to start with John chapter 18, verses 13, which is where we encounter Jesus being arrested. He's been betrayed by Judas, and he's taken off to the, a place called the Sanhedrin. This is a place where the religious leaders and the elders assemble. You would think he'd be going to jail, but no, he's taken to the Sanhedrin first, where he's verbally attacked and questioned by the religious leaders all for one purpose. Their goal is to get Jesus to blaspheme and to speak something against God. And Jesus, in being perfect and honest as he was, he answers the one question that they wanted. And that was to say that he was the prophesied Messiah, that he was God in the flesh, that he was God. And in saying that, he gave the religious leaders what it was that they wanted to get to the end goal that we'll learn about in a little bit. Because after he's at the Sanhedrin, he's then brought before the, um, the high priest of that time, Caiaphas, who then basically says, there's nothing more to hear. He tears his robe. Jesus is beaten and spit on and abused. And then the scriptures continue to say that the next day he's brought, he's brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. It says that it's in the morning, so I can't imagine Jesus slept much. And Pilate does an investigation of the charges the religious people, the religious leaders bring against him. And Pilate doesn't find anything wrong with him and he wants to release him. But the religious leaders say, and this is where we learn why it was so important that Jesus went to the Sanhedrin first, because the response to Pilate's lack of judgment is that the religious leaders say in verse 31, we don't have any right to execute anyone. 
And I imagine that probably took Pilate for a bit of a loop because he realizes that they want this man dead and I don't find anything wrong with him. Warranting that kind of a judgment. And a lot of back and forth happens. So in an effort to appease them, he has Jesus flogged. Jesus hasn't been convicted of anything. This kangaroo court has established nothing. But Pilate has Jesus flogged. And on the merciful end, a flogging is being whipped with flat leather straps. And on the more excruciating end, or the most severe end, it's being whipped with whips that are, have metal and bone shards embedded into them to do absolute damage. And we realize that was done because Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. But that wasn't enough to appease the religious leaders. So Pilate gave the people the opportunity to choose. And it was during this time of the year that the people had an opportunity to vote for someone to be released from prison. You think the people would do the right thing based on the fact that they praised Jesus coming into Jerusalem, but no. The religious leaders get them all riled up and they vote to release a murderer named Barabbas. Instead of the man who's done all these great things. I can't imagine how the, the neighborhood watch would have felt about that. But it does result, in the end, to Pilate sentencing Jesus to death by crucifixion. Because the religious leaders also threatened insurrection in that Pilate was no, no ally of Caesar's if he didn't do that. So Pilate, not wanting to put his own status at risk, he gives in and makes an incredibly unjust decision and sentences Jesus to die by crucifixion, a Roman tool of stamping out rebellion in the colonies. The religious leaders were using this tool to stamp out rebellion against their way of life and what they wanted. And Jesus then is turned over to the guards. He's beaten further. He is given a crown of thorns to put on his head. And then he's forced to carry his own cross all the way to Golgotha, the place of the skull where he's nailed to it, and he's hung. I can't even imagine the justice in this. It would have been enough to sentence him to death, but no, Jesus is unjustly sentenced to a flogging which brutalized his body, and then he's sentenced to death, where after a short time, he says, it is finished, and he gives up his soul for us and in effect, paying the penalty that we deserved for our sins. That is basically everything that Jesus is informing the apostles of in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. And then we get to 32 and 33, where Jesus rebukes Peter. Rereading that verse of Scripture, we read, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. There's got to be a better way, Jesus. And, and then Jesus turns to and looks at his disciples, and he rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And when I read Jesus' rebuke of Peter, the first there's a few things that jump off the page. There's two things that help me understand why there was no other way than God's way. And it's in what Jesus says about the mind of man. The reality is that the mind of man and the mind of God are completely different. Our sin separates us and puts us going in a different direction 
from the direction that God is going in. And because of that state, we can't even fathom what it would be like to even know what God's mind is so that we could do the right thing. Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 12 says, according to Paul, what Paul wrote, it says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become together worthless or together worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is the current state we all find ourselves in. I say that because Paul is reciting what truth that was said many centuries ago by the King David. Paul is basically restating what David said about their current state before God centuries before. And 2,000 years later, over 2,000 years later, that state hasn't changed. Apart from God, we do nothing good. We can't possibly do anything good. We don't have the mind of God. In our sinful state, we don't seek out God because living in sin means we're serving our own selfish desires. And it highlights to me this second point that jumps off the page in Jesus' rebuke. And it's this issue of our heart. Because when we think of our mind, the mind is often always a reflection of what is in our heart, what we are truly made of. And knowing that from our birth, our hearts are separate from God. We are sinful and going in the wrong direction from God. To me, it helps me realize that there is nothing that we could do that could make the situation we are in right with God. Our Creator knows this. And I can't tell you how many times I guess the best way I could illustrate this is to think about all those, what I call, all these prayers that I call if only prayers I've said. Maybe you've said prayers, those kinds of prayers too. You know, God, if only you would do this. If only you would get things going this way. They're going in the wrong direction or the news is expected to be bad. But God, if only you would do this, I would be your man or your woman forever. You wouldn't have to worry about me. And the reality is, is there is a constant concern because we have this sin issue in our hearts that is waging war in our flesh and waging war against our spirit, preventing us from doing the things that we should do. Proverbs chapter 16 verses 9 says this, A man's heart plans his way but the Lord directs his steps. This scripture verse came to mind and it confronts me with this reality that we will plan. As people, we will plan, we will scheme, we will do whatever we can to try and get things to work out favorably for us. But the reality is, is that everything that gets done is done with the approval of God because God is in control. God ordains the things that happen, whether we realize it or not, and it's going to work out so that His plan can be fulfilled. So for me as a Christian, I want to do everything I can to make sure that I'm in line with His plan and, in, and, and with His Word so that I can avoid problems in my life because I know that if, if I try to do it my way, as Frank Sinatra would sing, there's going to be problems. 
Paul spoke about this in, in chapter 8 of Romans when he said, My flesh wants to do one thing and my spirit wants to do another. The flesh wants to do the wrong thing, the spirit wants to do the right thing, and in the end, I end up doing the wrong thing. And this is the Apostle Paul, the great man of God who brought the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles, into the known world. So if Paul gets it wrong, what do you think is going to happen with us? We can't do it without God. I'm thankful that it is God who is directing our steps. Because without Him, without Him, we are at a loss. But it's because of God that He provides the easier way, the right way, the best way. In looking at these scriptures that serve as our context for today's message, I understand why Jesus was obedient. And why, when he looked at his apostles and what they were saying, that there was no other way. Even though Jesus prayed in the garden that the cup would be taken, Jesus, Jesus prayed that God's will would be done and that he'd be obedient to it. And he was. And thankfully so, because as a result, we are saved. For me, church, it has me thinking and asking a question, where are you today? Where are we as a body today? Looking at this, I come to the realization that there is only one Savior, and we are in desperately need of Him. It's not me. It's not you. It's not anyone you know here on earth today. It's Jesus. It's only Jesus. It's the sacrifice of the perfect to save the imperfect. It's the righteous for the unrighteous. It's the just for the unjust. It's this great exchange that allows us to do nothing but lay our lives down before a gracious God where Jesus finishes the work and does the work in his shed blood and his broken body on the cross. Truth be told, we're all sinners. The reality is from birth we learn from Scripture that we are divided and set going in our hearts and minds are bent against God. Knowing that to be true, I realize that even though Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago, we've all taken our turn swinging that hammer and putting that nail in that fastened him to the tree. But because of his, his grace, this great exchange takes place that sets us free. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 says, he, bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Because of what Jesus has done, we are returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. It has me thinking about what the writer of Hebrews said when he said, that Jesus' sacrifice was the one sacrifice for all time to put away all sacrifices for all people for all sin. Hebrews chapter 2, 12 verse 2 says that Jesus was the founder or is the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
So the reality is, is it's only in Jesus' sacrifice that we can be made right for God, with God. There is no other way. My blood's not enough. Your blood isn't enough. Everything I own is not enough. Everything you own is not enough. Everything I've done is not enough. Everything you've done or anyone's done in human history is not enough. It's only in Jesus. And if you're like me and you are saved, I want you and I hope that this, this message brings you cause to, to, to think and reflect and to be thankful that Jesus paid it all. And as the hymn says, all to him I owe. I'm grateful for that. If you're not a Christian, I pray that it has you thinking and realizing that maybe you can't save yourself. Maybe there isn't anything you have or that you've done that could make you good before God, regardless of what you think. And that you would humbly realize and receive God's grace, knowing that Jesus is the only way. That Jesus has done enough, regardless of what you may have done. That Jesus is enough to cover your sin. I started with a story in our message today, um, highlighting a great evil that was done against a, a, a young girl. And we were praying for the salvation of the offender's soul as much as we were praying for the healing of this young girl's body. Because we believe that God in His grace has the power to cover over all of it. And I want to finish with a story that took place again on this same missions trip in Guatemala that helped me realize that God's grace is truly enough. You see, over the course of the week we were there, nine days, we had the opportunity to meet these wonderful older ladies who served us. They looked after us, they fed us, they cleaned up after us, and they did it with a smile and joy in their heart. During the course of the week, I grew particularly fond of these ladies and how they treated and loved us. I often wanted to start and finish my day by giving them a hug and thanking them, and it wasn't long that I found out that I was having an impact on them. And by the, at the end of the week, I had the opportunity to hear of one woman's story of redemption. So you see, this woman had suffered her and her kids at the hands of a violently abusive husband. The abuse was verbal, it was physical, and it often involved weapons that put their lives at risk. This woman had no one to turn to, and you might think, why didn't she just get out of there? But the reality is, in countries like that, social services are limited, if they exist at all, to help people in those situations. So this woman felt like she had nowhere to go. But she turned to this church, Impacto Spanish Ministries, and, and the pastor, Luis, and they received her. They loved her. They provided for her and her family. And even more than that, they started to reach out to her husband. And they met with him. They prayed with him. They shared the gospel with him. And before long, this man was radically transformed. He let down his bottle and picked up his cross, gave his life over to Jesus. And at the time I met him, I would never have known that this is what his life was or what he did in his past because of who he was when I met him at that moment. And at that time, he had been serving with that ministry for five years. God's grace had restored this woman and her family to God and to each other. 
And that is the power of what only Jesus could do and what he accomplished through his shedding of his blood and his sacrifice on the cross. I want to finish with this verse of scripture. It's Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. It's what the Holy Spirit spoke through Paul when he said, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. In Christ, our sin, our indebtedness, was paid in full through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, setting us free to live the life that God intended for us to live. And that offer of grace is available to you no matter what you've done, no matter how ugly your sin is, no matter what anyone tells you or what you think of yourself, the gospel says and has been proven throughout history to be true that His grace is enough. And I pray that you receive it today on this Good Friday. And I do look forward as I wrap up this message to hopefully having fellowship with you in person um, at our church or anywhere I have the chance to meet you because I love you. And I know God loves you more than I could possibly imagine. And he showed that through Jesus. I pray you receive his offer of grace this Good Friday. And I say God bless and thank you. Amen.